You're listening to the Hospital Medicine Podcast with your host, Dr. Gil Parat. Today I'm going to be talking about internal medicine tips, and it'll be a hodgepodge of topics where some of it will be reviews, some of it may be new, and it's going to be on various topics. I'll call it part one because I hope to do more of these in the future. As my usual standard, I have no conflicts of interest. I really don't see drug reps unless they stop me, and then I'm usually nice to them but uh, don't invite them to my office. Some of these tips will be based in pet peeves of mine, and that's a good way to start, which is reversing Coumadin with vitamin K. A lot of the time you don't need to reverse it, and you can let the INR passively drift down, but my bigger pet peeve is when someone changes an order of mine and they are incorrect in why they change that order. I have no problem in changing an order if it's the right thing to do. And what happens probably about twice a year is that I will order oral vitamin K for a patient that is either bleeding or the INR is so extraordinarily high that I think most of us would agree it's time to reverse that INR or bring it back down into the therapeutic range. And then some specialist, maybe a surgeon or whoever that needs to do a procedure comes by and says, no, don't give the oral vitamin K, give the subcutaneous vitamin K because I want it to work faster so we can get to the OR or the intervention. The implication being that the oral form of the medication not only won't work fast enough, that I'm not being aggressive enough in dropping the INR. Sometimes in medicine our intuition doesn't work and we have data that shows the right way to do things. And indeed in this case, just because you are giving something through a needle instead of allowing the time for the oral form to work, Um, doesn't mean that the needle is going to work faster. In fact, we have data to show that is just not true. And that data comes in the form of a randomized controlled trial published in the Annals of Internal Medicine, August 20th, 2002. They gave one group of patients oral vitamin K. They gave another group of patients subcutaneous vitamin K at the same dose as the oral vitamin K. And then they checked an INR the next day. The group of patients that got the oral vitamin K actually had a more rapid drop in their INR towards the therapeutic range. A year later, in the Archives of Internal Medicine in 2003, on a study that starts on page 2469, they looked at oral administration of vitamin K and showed that it actually had similar efficacy to intravenously administered vitamin K. And while in this study the safety profile was the same for both, it was a fairly small study and we do know that anaphylaxis can occur with intravenous vitamin K. The big point being that if your patient can't take oral vitamin K because of nausea, vomiting, or other reasons why they can't swallow, it may be very reasonable to use another approach like subcutaneous vitamin K. Otherwise, you're probably giving them a faster medicine and faster way to reverse their INR if you give them oral vitamin K. In patients that are actively bleeding, obviously you want to use fresh frozen plasma as soon as possible if they have an elevated INR and you need to stop the bleeding fast. Vitamin K just takes too long. 
And then there is a bigger question as to whether vitamin K really works at all in patients that are over-anticoagulated with INRs greater than 4.5 if they are not bleeding. This dogma of giving vitamin K was actually just recently looked at. There's a study called Oral Vitamin K versus Placebo to Correct Excessive Anticoagulation in Patients Receiving Warfarin. This was in the Annals of Internal Medicine in 2009. It starts on page 293. It's a multi-center, randomized, placebo-controlled trial where they actually gave patients vitamin K if their INR was in the 4.5 to 10 range or a placebo. And what they found is low-dose oral vitamin K did not reduce bleeding in warfarin recipients with their INR 4.5 or greater. And again, it needs to be emphasized that those are non-bleeding patients. So I'm not telling you that if someone is bleeding with an elevated INR, not to reverse their INR. I think you should still do that unless we find data otherwise that contradicts that. Let me give a couple tips in gastroenterology. And one of them is that when you have acute gastroenteritis, you have a temporary lactose intolerance. I'd forgotten that fact, but saw that in the MIXAP 15. So when your patients are hospitalized with gastroenteritis and nausea and vomiting and diarrhea, you want to hold all lactose products and don't order a tray with milk products or else that diarrhea will restart because of that temporary lactose intolerance. Another gastroenterology tip from the Medical Knowledge Self-Assessment Program, page 39 of the MIXAP, talks about ulcerative colitis, which we see a lot in the hospital, and we use corticosteroids to help with severe disease exacerbations, and no dose effect above the equivalent of 60 milligrams of prednisone has been found, so you really don't need to go above 60 milligrams of prednisone to help with an acute exacerbation of ulcerative colitis. I love any tips that help with guiding of corticosteroids. Speaking of corticosteroids, let's talk about adrenal insufficiency and a tip I can offer about that. We often have patients in the hospital with low blood pressure and we often suspect adrenal insufficiency in those with hypotension. Doctors often desire to do a rapid ACTH stimulation test. This is also known as a cosentropin stimulation test, and cosentropin is a synthetic derivative of ACTH. The idea being that if we give the cosentropin and there is a rapid rise in cortisol, then we're pretty happy that at least the adrenal glands are likely working the way we want them to though there is some controversy about that. And when we do a rapid ACTH test, it can take about an hour. There's some people that like to do the infusion over six hours for greater adrenal stimulation. But what if it's an adrenal crisis and the hypotension is too significant to wait, meaning you really want to replace them now with corticosteroids? In that situation, you want to use dexamethasone, and that tip is something I picked up from the second edition of the textbook called Hospital Medicine. It's on page 1106, and what it says is that dexamethasone does not impair interpretation of the ACTH test. I'm sure that's in a lot of textbooks, and I just seem to have missed that over the years. And while on that topic, I was reading last night the Cleveland Clinic Journal of Medicine, the October 2011 edition, and they have a really great review article, and it's called 
update in intensive care medicine, studies that challenged our practice in the last five years. And one of the recommendations when they are talking about corticosteroid and septic shock, and I'm going to quote them, is this. The corticotropin stimulation test should not be done to determine the need for corticosteroids in patients with septic shock. End quote. And what they were looking at was the Corticus study from New England Journal of Medicine in 2008. And of course, corticosteroid therapy in septic shock is very controversial, and I don't want to get into that right now. But when you do or don't give steroids in septic shock, what they're saying is the ACTH stimulation test in that specific scenario probably is not helpful. The treatment with corticosteroids did not reduce mortality in the subgroups based on response to ACTH. So ACTH testing, very good for looking for adrenal insufficiency like Addison's disease, but doesn't seem to have much of a role in septic shock at this point in time. Corticosteroids can have hemodynamic benefit in patients with septic shock, and that benefit is regardless to the response of the ACTH stimulation test. Now, again, the big question is whether corticosteroids actually affect mortality rates compared to placebo groups, and that's what's been very difficult with corticosteroids in septic shock. You've been listening to the Hospital Medicine Podcast, Internal Medicine Tips, part one. Hope to do more of this in the future. Again, if you're getting any value out of this, please do go to iTunes, rate me, write a review. I'd really appreciate it. Bye.